to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thanks for joining us in this episode of Pharmacy Hot Topics, where we sit down with the content matter experts and discuss what is currently top of mind in the world of pharmacy. My name is Jennifer Ryder, and I am an ambulatory care pharmacy manager with Indiana University Health in Bloomington, Indiana. And I'm here with Allie Fay, a clinical pharmacist with Family Health Centers in Asheville, North Carolina. Today, we will be chatting with Marianne Clee Thermos, Director of Medication Safety and Quality with ASHP, and Jillian Schulte Wall, Senior Director, Health and Policy Regulation with ASHP. Thank you for joining Allie and me today, Marianne and Jillian. Let's go ahead and get started with our topic, Fast Facts for Ambulatory Care Pharmacists, 2021 and 22 updates to the physician fee schedule. So we'll start with you, Jillian. What is the physician fee schedule and where can you find this? Oh, sure. So PMS does a number of big payment rolls every year. So there are schedules for the hospital side. There are schedules for... um, nursing homes and long-term care facilities. The big three are the inpatient perspective payment system, which is hospitals, which is the outpatient perspective payment system, which is again, hospitals, but it's the outpatient side of things. And then the physician fee schedule with it, which is part Medicare part B, and it kind of covers everything else. So it's all the physician's offices and clinical services that aren't hospital or in a hospital outpatient department. So every year CMS publishes the proposed rule. Generally it's sometime in the like summer. Um, it can really vary based on what CMS is focused on at the time. So the last couple of years it's been late. Um, and then the final rule is published usually around October because it has all of the fee schedule for the next calendar year. So the easiest place to find the physician fee schedule, if you want to read it, it is a long document. It's about 800 pages. So just prepare yourself. I would Google it on CMS because they have fact sheets and things that kind of demystify some of it. But if you really want to look at it and it's purest form, you can go to the federal register and just enter physician fee schedule for calendar year 2022, and it'll come up. And I'll I'll just add that this year it was 2,500 pages. (laughs) So Marianne, can you give a brief overview of the changes in the physician fee schedule that affected pharmacists provided ambulatory patient care practice from the 2021 physician fee schedule? I think it's good to to know what happened last year because it was pretty impactful for pharmacy practice. And, you know, there's been much confusion about what level of established patients, which we often codes, which we often call incident two codes. Those are the 99211 to 99215. They're really established patient codes of which CMS allows them to be delegated incident two. There's been much confusion over the years for the past 10, 15 years, whether pharmacists can bill higher or not. And there was a ruling in 2015 that would imply in the physician fee schedule that we could. However, in 2019, some MACs were interpreting that differently and saying, no, pharmacists being not providers could not bill higher than 99211. And so last year, we asked CMS, um, the pharmacy community, including ASHP, asked CMS to to clarify that, and they did. And unfortunately, not in our favor, they said that because pharmacists aren't providers, that they could not bill higher than 99211. And as you all know, that is equivalent to a five-minute low-complexity visit, which is not what most of us do. 
However, they said they recognize the value of pharmacists, et cetera, and they would consider other things, including pharmacist-only codes. And so we continue to, throughout the year, as well as in the comments to the 2022, to encourage them to relax that or to allow pharmacists to do that because we are not equivalent to the auxiliary personnel or ancillary personnel or what the new term that mostly is in the physician fee schedules, clinical staff, equivalent in training or knowledge to an MA, an LPN, and even an RN, but they didn't address it at all in this year. So we are still under that established patient incident to code to be 99211. The other big uh, thing that happened last year was that they switched, adopted the AMA evaluation and management documentation recommendations. And so um, that also played a part in it because AMA uh, specifically said that auxiliary personnel could only bill at the level of 99211. And they also said that all time-based Building it was only for eligible providers in that that NCMS adopted that. What the purpose of the the, the update in the EMN was to reduce the documentation required, and they greatly did. And actually, if we were allowed to bill those, it would make it much easier. What they reduced is those requirements of how many elements in the history and physical, how many elements of review of systems and physical exam, and they switched the complexity to more um, what were the conditions and symptoms that how acute and how and the number of them um, that a patient has and, and what was the extent to the required data needed to be reviewed and the complexity of assessment and management. And they gave some examples in, in there of what that would mean. And you know, a complex medication list, for example, drove up the complexity of that visit. So documentation doesn't really change. It's more you don't have to meet these numbers anymore that were required before. So that's the big changes of, of uh, 2021 that affected us. Jillian, if you had anything else to add to that, or if you're able to just explain the difference between direct and general supervision and what changes were indicated in this in the 2021 physician fee schedule. Sure. So I'll take each one of those one at a time. So with the EMM coding, just a reminder for members that this is something that we've been really focused on trying to resolve. So we've had a number of meetings with CMS. I don't think we were surprised that they did not make a change in the final rule for the 2022 PFS regarding the EM coding. I think they are trying to figure out how to move forward. And because the initial EM changes were in the final rule for 2021 and were not included in the proposed rule for 2022, it's hard for the CMS to then address something that wasn't included in the proposed rule for a year in the final rule for that year. It kind of violates the notice and comment requirements that they have to live by. So um, we are continuing to work on this. We've set up a set of proposed codes um, that would be pharmacist specific and that would reflect the sort of current menu of ENM services. So it would really kind of track the ENM list that exists now, but it would be for pharmacists to bill. And then the other option we proposed to CMS was just to put a pharmacist modifier on 
the existing ENM code set. And so I think CMS is sort of mulling this over. I think one of the things that's come up several times is whether there needs to be a statutory change to do this, because as Marianne noted, one of their big concerns is that they can allow billing by a pharmacist above 99211 because pharmacists cannot independently bill above that number. I think ASHP stands on that is that's not really what the statute says or requires. So the bottom line is we're going to continue to push CMS on this because at the end of the day, these codes are among the most widely used in the PFS. And they are also, this disadvantages the physicians and other NPPs that we work with because they've relied on pharmacists to provide these services. They've gotten very used to care models that have integrated pharmacists to do this. And so I think one of the things we're having the discussion with CMS about is putting practitioners in front of CMS, and this includes physicians, to talk about how this works in practice and why it's important that pharmacists can provide these services. So just a little bit more kind of detail around what's going on with EM coding. And then on the general supervision versus direct supervision front, it's um, two things have happened. One, there's been a shift kind of wholesale with CMS to um, more general supervision requirement. That's always been the case for PFS, um, but also in the outpatient settings now, CMS is much more comfortable with general supervision, which simply means that if you are providing services incident to a physician, that physician does not have to be in the same office suite with you. They just need to be immediately available available to you. And so pre-COVID, that meant like physically available. Like you wanted to see this person on the same campus where you were providing your services, or at least like readily available, not, you know, in a different city. Once COVID hit, CMS kind of had to take a hard look at how they were allowing supervision to occur. And what they came up with was this idea of virtual supervision. So there are two different ways this can happen. One, you may have a pharmacist providing services subject to oversight by a physician who's only available virtually. So they may be at a different hospital. They may be in a different city. They may be in a different part of your state. Usually there's not a whole lot of across state lines simply because that kind of creates state level problems sometimes, but it's not impossible. So that's one way it's done. The other way it's done is where everyone is virtual. So you are meeting in a telehealth visit, for instance, with a patient. And then if you need that physician, to step in, that physician can theoretically just connect in virtually as well. So the key piece of supervision is still there, which is that that person is readily available to step in. The physician or the MPP that's supervising is there to step in if needed, but it really did provide a lot of additional flexibility around how to structure that supervision arrangement. So CMS this year has said, look, we're going to maintain virtual supervision for the moment. What they have not done is committed to keeping it permanently at this point. They keep punching on a lot of these COVID-19 regulatory flexibilities, in part, I think, because they're waiting to see whether there's a drop-off and uptake as things move slightly more towards normal. But I think the the kind of key takeaways ASHP has had from conversations with members and also with other healthcare organizations is this is something, these, these regulatory flexibilities like virtual supervision, this is something you want to maintain because it really does allow for the, the growth and the expansion of really innovative care models that provide a lot more access than what was permissible under like one-to-one real world only type of model where you actually physically had to be present. So we're going to 
continue to kind of push for long-term adoption for virtual supervision for PFS services, just because it provides so much additional flexibility and could theoretically provide a lot more patient access, particularly in rural and underserved areas. Thanks for that, Jillian. And we really appreciate all your efforts in trying to get these things to become permanent and increase the sustainability of pharmacist practice models. I think you kind of started touching on this just a little bit, but uh, can you summarize the changes for us of what's happening with telehealth and the reimbursement around telehealth models in the new physician fee schedule? Sure. So this is another area where CMS is still kind of making decisions as it goes rather than coming out and and allowing for permanent adoption of some of the changes that happened around the COVID-19 public health emergencies. So with the public health emergency, CMS can waive a lot of requirements for things that they can't do under normal circumstances. And unfortunately, when the public health emergency ends, that authority kind of goes away. So I think part of this is that CMS is still kind of getting its ducks in a row as to whether it has the regulatory authority outside of a public health emergency to allow some of these flexibilities. And if not, whether there's a way to get a fix in legislatively to be able to do it. Because I do think, again, like I think telehealth in general was a surprise to everyone. I, you know, In all the years that I've worked with the healthcare system at this point, I've never seen anything move as fast as the the telehealth expansion uh, during COVID. And it was kind of a shock, especially with the the way the regulatory structures really opened up to allow for changes really, really quickly. I don't think we will ever see anything like that again. I mean, hopefully we never see a pandemic like this again, but I don't know that we will ever see the speed of regulatory change we saw at the outside of the pandemic. So that kind of leaves us in a place where CMS is reviewing all the current telehealth codes it added under the COVID flexibilities. And they're maintaining the list they've said until December 31st, 2023. Because I think at minimum, we're looking at an extension of the public health emergency until the end of 2023. And I think that gives them some time to kind of parse what's going to be workable for them to add as a permanent telehealth service and what isn't. And so most of the telehealth codes are are going to stay for the foreseeable future, so until at least the end of 2023. But they did kind of cut back on the some of the audio-only telehealth services. CMS, I think, is uncomfortable with the idea of having audio-only codes when there's the potential to have audio-visual available instead. So they're really limiting the situations where you can do audio only, and they really want to cut it down to just mental health services, including substance use disorder services. And they only want to have it done when the beneficiary is requesting the audio only versus the audiovisual format. So when you are providing mental health services via audio only means, you have to have a modifier to attach to that code now to verify that you as the provider could have provided two-way communications, but that the the patient actually requested audio only for whatever reason. And sometimes it's a matter of whether they have broadband access, whether they have the technology in hand to have an audiovisual communication, or whether they have certain disabilities that make audiovisual communication less than ideal. The other thing CMS wanted to do to kind of draw a line under the audio only services is that if you're going to receive reimbursement for audio only services, patients need to have an in-person visit within six months of the telehealth 
services. So I think there's a concern at CMS that they don't want to create a paradigm where you never see patients in person, particularly for like very sensitive services like mental health and substance use disorders. They really want to have that backstop there where, you know, you have to see your patient in the flesh every six months. So that's kind of the the big change that's afoot around audio-only telehealth, and then everything else is kind of staying the same, staying in stasis until we hit 2023. Marian, I don't know if you had anything you kind of wanted to flesh out there. There are a couple things that I thought were interesting as I was reading through this section. First one is the whole idea of virtual supervision, where they stated in their report that they're fearful of somebody supervising way too many other clinical staff under telephonic or audiovisual. So they have that fear. If they do that, I suspect there will be guardrails as further regulations come forward. The second thing, and the reason why they said they are extending it to um, 2023, is they want to collect data and they want the practitioners to provide them data because there are certain rules they have for telehealth that allows them. They have these three categories and the third category is kind of just temporary category that they created for COVID. But the they need to make sure that they have evaluated it enough for it to be safe, to make sure that patients don't do worse if they're doing telehealth. So they want to see that kind of data. And they want to know that the same quality doesn't decline and that there are parts of a service, a defined service. So if you're thinking about comprehensive ed management, is there something that you cannot do because it's telehealth? Now, probably doesn't affect us as much as it may do somebody who has to do a physical assessment and whether that can be effectively and adequately done. So they want to see data. And I wanted to point that out because, you know, we're not in the conversation, but on GTMRX, which ASHP is heavily involved in, um, we have looked at the data for telehealth. It's not robust. It's small. Most of it comes from the VA, but for anyone who's listening, who's involved in this, we really have two years, I think, to maybe influence based on that criteria what CMS does. Thank you for that. And Marianne, speaking of those telehealth changes for next year, there were some changes to CCM and PCM. Can you please review some of those changes for next year? So these were kind of good. (laughs) They increased the RVU. So From reading the physician fee schedule for as many years as I have, CMS definitely wants TCM, PCM. They want these unique codes that they've created to be used. And they're still feeling that many of these codes, and we we could talk about more of them as, as this podcast goes on, but they don't feel they're being used enough. They want they're used to be higher. So they keep incentivizing over the years. And so this year, they are increasing the RVUs by almost double for every one of the codes that are used in CCM and PCM. And another administrative thing is um, for PCM, for the extended time, they had G codes until the AMA CPT committee could come up with codes. And so those codes are now 99 I think they're 99424 and 99426. So those are the the codes. So just to let everyone know that they're no longer G codes starting in January. 
Thanks for that summary. So switching gears just a little bit to everybody's favorite topic, COVID. Could you please review what pharmacists are able to bill as far as uh, COVID testing and vaccine administration and how that may vary depending on their practice setting? So the COVID testing and vaccination, it varies based on which setting you're in. So in general, for testing, if you are in the hospital setting or a clinic setting, you're going to be doing things incident to a physician in most cases, So, particularly in the clinical setting. And so what will happen is you can, in, in those cases, bill for the kind of knowledge component of the testing piece, so patient counseling, things like that, plus the test itself. If you are in a retail or community pharmacy setting, you cannot bill for specimen collection unless you have a special arrangement in place. You also don't really have the same ability to bill for that knowledge component the way and counseling component the way you would if you have an incident to arrangement. Now, some retail pharmacies or community pharmacies may create their own kind of little incident to models. So in those cases, you're going to have a physician you're probably already working with. There just wasn't enough time for most people in the community and retail settings to establish physician relationships if they didn't already have it or they didn't have some sort of standing arrangement with the state. And so I think that that has been a frustration when we've talked to the other pharmacy groups because the ability of, of a pharmacist to provide testing was, was going to be kind of contingent upon how comfortable they were with the amount of reimbursement they were going to get for their particular practice setting. So there just seemed to be a lot more flexibility in the clinical setting versus in the community and retail setting, which was unfortunate because obviously a lot of the foot traffic for testing is coming through the community and retail pharmacy side. So they did kind of work out an arrangement where you you do get payment that is, I think, pharmacists feel are sufficient to justify it. And so that that has moved forward on the vaccination side, uh, the firms. I think it's it's more or less the same process in the community in the retail setting. You're registering as a mass immunizer as the pharmacy. Um, you'll do roster billing in most cases for that. They and they being CMS. CMS has really bumped up the uh, reimbursement for the COVID vaccines in part because they wanted to make sure there was as much access as possible and they wanted to be very careful to create a payment mechanism that would cover costs and be sustainable longer term for every setting that was going to provide vaccines. So when the vaccines initially rolled out, the payment was somewhere around like 30 bucks for the initial vaccine and then like another 18 for the second. They've bumped that way up. And I think it's now close to, I want to say it's $40 per shot for each vaccine shot. So if you're doing a two regimen, two two shot regimen, that's $80 total reimbursement. And I think the, the payment rate is actually the same for the boosters as well. And so I think as that has kind of expanded and they've seen uptake with COVID, I think there's now kind of a, a determination at CMS that maybe they need to look at the reimbursement rates for other Part B vaccines. And Marianne, I don't know if you wanted to talk about this piece or not, but I think that's kind of the next step in the evolution of what CMS is willing to pay for. Yeah, it's a really interesting, Jillian, when I was reading through that, I don't know whether you thought, but it was really interesting because what's been happening with the Part B vaccines, which is pneumo, cockle, influenza, and hepatitis B, is that the reimbursement's been going down. 
for the past four or five years. It it was at, at the highest, I think, $25 to administer, and it's down, it was down to 16. So you can see there's a big disparity between those vaccines and COVID vaccine. Now, they justified the COVID vaccine because of the storage requirements and the reporting requirements so that, that it's higher cost to somebody who's administering it. But the interesting thing is that they realize that that's pretty big disparity. So they're bumping up as of January, all the other Part B vaccines to $30. And their plan is to bring back down once the COVID emergency pandemic date is is done is that they're planning to bring back that for COVID to $30. So that's a good thing for community colleagues or anyone who's who does this even in in their clinic. So it's improvement in that. Yeah, the other thing I think we might want to just touch on real quickly is the the monoclonals and the new antiviral therapies. So this is sort of a work in progress. From the monoclonal antibodies, they're going to, CMS has said they'll maintain the same payment rates that they've had since the institution of the therapies. So it's about $450 for, per administration, and that includes injectable administration if you're a pharmacy providing these services. And then $750 for in-home administration for each course. The antivirals are sort of a work in progress. So we've asked to meet with CMS. And in fact, there is a meeting currently taking place with CMS on this issue. This is, again, a situation where where you are practicing is going to impact what you can get paid for. So just like with testing, the concern, I think, in the retail settings is that you're not going to be able to get reimbursed for that counseling piece that goes along with the antivirals. And the other thing we want to see is a PrEP Act declaration that would allow pharmacists to initiate antiviral therapy across the country. And we wanted to include not only the COVID-19 antivirals, but also influenza, because at the same time, you know, you have patients presenting with something that could be one or the other. If you can do all of the testing and everything in a one-stop type of shop, you're going to avoid a lot of the problems that kind of occur with the time-based therapies, where if you are instead forced to go find an appointment with your primary care provider, assuming you even have one, you may be edged out of the time frame for the most time-sensitive therapies. So CMS, I think, is open to this. I know they do want to see the antiviral pills as widely accessible as possible. So that would include, of course, retail and community pharmacy settings. So we will see what they finally decide on in terms of payment mechanisms. But I think this has been one of those areas where it's really clear that having pharmacists not be able to bill as providers on their own is really disadvantageous because it forces workarounds with the agencies that are frustrating for everyone. Because CMS wants to just go ahead and do this, but they feel hamstrung by the law. You know, we've been pushing for provider status in Congress, but at the end of the day, CMS can't, they can opine, but they can't really push Congress to do anything. So it's a, it's a catch-22. You know, they want to see more services flowing down to the pharmacies, but they're going to have to make some changes to how they are reimbursing in order to make that sustainable long-term. Thank you for that. In addition to those changes that we had talked about before, are there any additional items addressed in the physician fee schedule that might be important for our audience to know? 
I think there are. It's kind of interesting as I read through the physician fee schedule over the years, I think CMS is trying to provide opportunities for clinical staff that don't have provider status to do things. And I don't think it's totally us because when you read the discussion of the programs that I'm going to talk about, they talk about physical therapy and occupational therapy too. The two codes that they, they spent a fair amount of time with are the remote therapy monitoring and the remote physiological monitoring. And, and they both have, are a set of codes. One has five codes, one has seven codes, where um, they have physician billable only or eligible provider billable only codes. And then they have what they call care management codes for each of them, of which there are two, two codes. In that, when they define those codes is what care management has, they talk about therapy management and therapy adherence. And, you know, they don't define it as just physical therapy, occupational therapy, or medication therapy. They just, it's just therapy. So, and again, in their discussions, these are codes they want to see used more. And, uh, you know, so I think it's just adding to the armamentarium, you know, the hodgepodge of codes that we can try to pull all together to justify or to help sustain our services. So I think it's in there and I just want people to be aware of them and try to figure out how they can use them. The other one that they talk about is the Medicare Diabetes Prevention Program, the MDPP, of which they have already said pharmacists can directly bill if they become part of that program. But that also has not gotten the uptake that they wanted. So they've done a few things this year. Again, you know, they kind of put these onerous programs together and then people don't uptake and they kind of try to figure out how that is. So they've removed the uh, requirement to be a payment requirement to be registered in this program. They removed that. And they've also uh, put more of the payment up front because before most of the payment was at the end. And so it didn't incentivize people to do it. And they've decreased the amount of time. It used to be a two-year program and they've decrease it down to one-year program. So I look at these and I say, you know, I give credit to CMS trying to help get clinical staff to have more opportunities, you know, like it, it looks like to me they're trying to help. But the negative of this, you know, and, and CMS seems to be very into these little programs is that it just adds another complexity to try to bill. You know, it, it just, it's not what most people do and now they have to figure it out. And it's usually, you know, there's times that, you know, you can't drop the bill when you see the patient, which has been traditional fee-for-service. So it gets a little bit more complex. But to add to that, they also are considering a chronic pain management program, kind of like all of these others, like chronic care management. And so they are just gathering information on that. And I think it's important that we pay attention to what they're doing and make sure, um, even before they come up with rulings, I think, to make sure that those of us who are involved in pain management, because it includes med management, and titration up and down, which pharmacists do. I know I did it when, you know, I'm sure you guys do it when you're in practice. And so they they want to know who's doing it, what they're doing for future rulemaking. So I think it's an important little caveat. It's not that I think I would, if I was CMS, I would do it this way because I think it's very onerous to have all these codes, but that's what they're doing. So it's interesting. That's all great information. And I know a lot of us are in kind of that two worlds where we're trying to bill and then we're also trying to show value because we have some value-based programs. So I think just to end us, can we talk about maybe any changes that are occurring with any of the quality programs? So the quality programs. In the 2,500 pages, a 1,000 of the pages are on the quality programs. <laughs> and I think, you know, I didn't read them all. I kind of scanned through. It. Basically, MIPS is not changing this year. 
for the most part. But MIPS is starting in 2023 is going to be converted to their Medicare value pathways, which is meant to simplify, reduce burden, and connect the measures and activities into sort of one. And so their plan is to have seven measures and that they'll introduce in 2023. So I think when you look at the measures that are out there, not so much in the MIPS program, but in the ACO program, you know, the majority of them pharmacists can contribute to. So I think it'll be really important to understand what they do and how they do it here. Interoperability, they did say in, in this fee for physician fee schedule is going to be key. Uh, you know, they want to drive that. So I just think it's important for us to know. And there's a lot of detail provided in this particular physician fee schedule. So if any members out there are very heavily involved in, you know, the quality metrics, especially the Medicare quality metrics, either way alternative payment models or in fee-for-service, I think is probably worth reading. And the other interesting thing they did at the end is they cost-justified a lot of these rulings. And so it's kind of interesting to see how they look to see which measures create what kind of burden, reporting which measures create what kind of burden as, as we're telling practitioners what their methodology is so that they can better understand how they're figuring out where burden occurs and where burden doesn't occur. Like I said, it's a thousand pages of reading that uh, I just certainly didn't have time for, but it, but I think it's something we just want to keep our eye on. And Jillian, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I think that, see, I think you're right. I think CMS is looking at the burden reduction generally. I also think they are kind of trying to figure out what the next iteration of their quality programs is going to look like. So every time there's a switch in administrations, you kind of see a revamping to some degree of the quality programs. And it's funny because it tends to be cyclical. <laughs> so things that were in vogue, you know, 10 years ago suddenly become like the hot new way to, to determine quality. I also think CMS is hesitant to make major changes this year because we're still in a pandemic. And I they didn't make changes in 2020, really. Um, so I think we're still kind of in a holding pattern with some of the things CMS wants to do until we get through at least this year, but potentially maybe even next year if things don't ease off on COVID. You know, one of the things, again, saying reading them for so long, you see the influence is definitely on who's in the White House <laughs> and how the programs go. So I think we, we will have some interesting times coming up, but I do think it's important for us to kind of just know what's going on here because if, if we are so lucky to get provider status, these quality programs include every single person who is a provider under Medicare. So I would hate for us to be all of a sudden thrown into this program and not really understand what's going on. I think it's just important to keep an eye on what they're doing and uh, how that may impact us. And when would CMS put us right into those programs? So we should be thinking about it. Uh, not that we're not, but just you know, making sure we understand what's going on in these programs. Well, that was a great session time that we spent together, but I think that's all the time that we have for today. So I just want to thank Jennifer, Marianne, and Jillian for joining us in today to discuss Fast Facts for Ambulatory Care Pharmacists, the 2021 updates to the physician fee schedule. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's online resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as the Ambulatory Care Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, the Research Resource Center, Clinical Pharmacy Resources, and more. So thanks again for tuning in 
for this session of Hot Topics in Pharmacy, and we hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the ASHP podcast through your favorite podcast provider. Thank you for having us. Thanks. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.